Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be hearing a discussion between the writer, anthropologist and folklorist Amy Hale and the artist, writer and educator Tai Shani. Tai Shani is the author of Our Fatal Magic, published in December of last year by Strange Tractor, and a Turner Prize winning artist. She and the other artists nominated, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, Helen Hammock and Oscar Murillo accepted the award as a collective in a gesture of solidarity. This sense of solidarity is woven into much of Ty's work, which often takes the form of videos, performance, sculptural installations and texts. She draws on a range of sources from Walt Disney films and medieval literature to feminist science fiction. She'll be speaking with Amy Hale, who is an anthropologist who specializes in the occult, pagan history and religion and culture in the Anglophone world. Amy has written on topics as diverse as Cornish ethno-nationalism, pagan religious tourism, colour theory and extremist politics in the contemporary occult. They'll be discussing the work of Ithel Colhoun in celebration of the publication of Amy's book, Ithel Colhoun, Genius of the Fern-Loved Gully, published by Strange Tractor Press in November. Colhoun was an artist, occultist and writer born in 1906 to a British colonial family in India. After moving to Britain as a child, she spent most of her life in London and Cornwall, producing artworks, associating with surrealists, and studying occultism. With all that being said, I'll now pass over to Amy and Ty. Hi, Amy. I'm really, really excited to be able to talk to you. Uh, There's so many things that run through Ithel's work that I find completely compelling and interesting, and it's so amazing to read a book that brings together all the kind of different strands of her life, her works practice, and also the kind of interests and beliefs that she had and how how rich this kind of um, interior world of hers is really. Um, So maybe you could just introduce the book a little bit and, and kind of tell me what also was compelling to you about writing about her. Sure. Uh, This project is in some ways about 20 years old now. I started looking into Ethel Colhoun's life when I was living in Cornwall and working at the Institute of Cornish Studies. And it grew out of the work that I was doing in Cornwall related to Celtic identities and particularly esoteric occult and pagan Celtic identities. And at this stage, I'd completed my dissertation, which looked very closely at those themes in Cornwall as well as ethno-nationalism, and how when you look at the idea of the Celt and modern Celtic identities, you get these two strands that interweave with each other of political identities and ethnic identities and occult, esoteric, and pagan ideas of what it meant to be a Celt way back before Christianity. And you always get those two things weaving together. And so when I was told about the work of Ethel Colquhoun in Cornwall, and I hadn't really, I hadn't discovered her, she weaves these two ideas of 
kind of her own understanding of a Celtic identity and ethnicity with her ideas of what kind of the magical otherworldly Celt would have been. And for her, the fact that these things were best to be found in Cornwall kind of mirrored my own reasons for working in Cornwall in the first place, because you get these two ideas coming together in Cornwall in ways that I don't think that you necessarily do in other Celtic areas. So as the project went on, and you know, when you, I've never done a biography before, and as I got to know her and her work and her network and her own kind of project of enlightenment, there was this kind of interesting intimacy that came about with this cantankerous artistic spirit. And she was dealing with some of the same questions that I have always academically and personally dealt with. So, you know, there was her Celtic stuff, but also her magic, which is an important part of my own world as well. So it's been this interesting conversation dialogue that I've had with this very intensive spirit for about 20 years now. And the biography is clearly not the end, you know, this project, it just, she reveals herself so much over time as she has to me. So the biography, getting that out was step one. And it, it's been amazing to see as I've been doing this piece, the context for occult art and esoteric art shifting dramatically. If I put this biography out 10 years ago, I think it would have been a very different conversation because I think the world is maybe a little bit more ready to go to some of the places that Isaac Calhoun goes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things, um, I, I was first made aware of her work because I was researching um, in this kind of long-term project that I was doing. I wanted to build a, a kind of fictional museum in it. And one of the things that I wanted to think about was people that had been maybe hadn't had the kind of recognition that I thought that they their work deserved and also the kind of I don't want to use the word multidisciplinary I don't think that's the right word but this kind of richness of practice and this interweaving of life and work which I feel very close to in, in how I work and, and I came across her work you know researching kind of overlooked artists in a way and then again I came across it a second time um, in Linda's work the ballet, The Children of the Mantic State. And so I, I've, I've known about her work and I've seen it in, in real life, luckily for me, in a few exhibitions here and there. But I, I wasn't familiar with her biography at all. And one of the things that I found really striking about it and kind of like made me quite sad was she kind of drifts, well, not drifts, because I think you make a very strong point about the fact that there's a kind of rigor and a searching in her this kind of journey that she goes from these different types of groups and, and these different social structures that revolve around art making or magical societies. But to me, there's also this feeling of like how little, how flimsy the network for independent women would have been at that time. And that really comes across in the book, as well as it being, you know, a, a decision to learn more and, and to kind of take uh, different parts of different uh, traditions, which is really interesting in itself. But there's also this feeling that she kind of didn't find a place that she felt completely that she could be her full self in. 
that there were always facets of herself that could be articulated in these different places, but not this kind of entirety or this wholeness. I think that's a really excellent point. And looking at her life through that particular lens, people coming at, looking at all of her interests, see them as very fragmented, whereas I see this real internal coherence. But I think in that coherence is the fact that she had principles she was using to really build her own world. You know, she had, she definitely had ideas of what needed to go in there and what didn't need to go in there, which is why we look at the fact that she was super interested in witchcraft yet never went to Wicca because that did not belong. So we can look at the things that, that she felt belonged in her life, yet I think you're very right in the sense that she had to kind of piece a lot of this together. I love that you picked up in the book, I think her real challenge with being the woman that she wanted to be because she was so uncompromising, which is fantastic. But she wrote some things that I didn't really address in, in this book. She wrote some essays about being a woman and being an uncompromising woman and what that entailed and how the struggle to remain true to yourself and what you want, you have to make some social choices. Like marriage, probably not going to be great for that. And children, probably not going to be great for that. Traditional employment, not going to be great for that. So, you know, she was really aware of the constraints on womanhood and had no problem talking about them. But yes, I think there is a deep sadness that comes through in the fact that this is something that I, I don't know, I see it in some of the work of yours that I've seen that just, well, being a woman is really hard. And that has not changed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, obviously, and I don't want to speak for you, but for me, it kind of comes through loud and clear. Being a woman, being a woman in a woman's body, being a socially constructed woman, identifying with the feminine yeah. and what that means, that definitely. identification with the feminine is hard. Definitely. And it's also such a kind of historically impermanent kind of category. And, you know, I think like generationally it shifts so much. And like for my generation, you know, I feel that the kind of gendered violences that I experienced were very common for people my age and ideas around consent. You know, there are many things like that that I think have really truly changed in quite like seismic ways in terms of how people like consider themselves you know, in terms of their gender, their sexuality, how those two things kind of interplay. But I thought it was very interesting, like, you know, her kind of ideas around gender. And there's obvious that there's a very marked interrogation about gender and a kind of obvious frustration at the maybe the chasmic gaps between her desires and like the kind of context, social context that she lived in. But I thought the kind of, I think this is kind of something that happens a lot with, with um, the work of looking at historical feminist practices. There is this question often around essentialism, isn't there, and like a binary. And, you know, I prefer to give historical characters or, or people, historical figures that precede these kind of more performative conceptions of gen- gender that we have now. I, I give them the benefit of the doubt and I think of the kind of binaries and the essentialist categories that they propose as 
as you say, like a masculine and a feminine as a mode that could be embodied by all bodies. I just don't know how useful it is to do the contrary, if that makes sense, to kind of think, were they essentialists? I don't know, like, you know, as a kind of historical position, what that means. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. And a lot of times when I evaluate her work and I look at some of the themes which are important to me as, as a researcher, when I'm looking at, okay, how, was her, how were her conceptions of gender influencing her ideas of magic or sex magic? Or, you know, how was she conceptualizing issues like, you know, race and nationalism? What interests me looking at some of the things that she did around gender is that being as into the magical milieu of the time as she was, there were places in terms of gender essentialism and magic that she didn't go, which is what fascinates me. That she didn't take this she didn't write a lot about the essence of the magical feminine in ways that many other women magicians did. And the things that she was doing, especially in her representation of the female body, especially the female body as nature, I actually don't feel it would be really easy to see, to say she saw women's bodies as nature because of the equation, the, you know, essentialist equation of women in nature. I don't think she was exactly doing that because she does it with men too. Yeah. And she also, yeah, she speaks about a kind of also an idea of a a union of polarities and, and the dissolution of gender through that, which is a kind of quite a contemporary idea, I think even. It, in many ways it is and yeah i mean it runs it runs throughout a lot of magical literature obviously the idea of the you know the idea of the divine hermaphrodite the union of the genders before the fall and this kind of perfected state but i feel and you know it maybe it's just my own lens but i, I feel like she's doing something different there mm-hmm. i don't feel like i, I feel like maybe Gendersome is something for her that gender is tired is wonderful and tiresome at the same time because she has to she she has to bear the weight of her gender and I feel like there's something there to unpack mm-hmm, definitely and and you know even you know the fact that she was experimental with her sexuality you know there's a definite interrogation there and I think that also comes across in her depiction of bodies in general you know there is a kind of uh, tension there around gender and around yeah the kind of sexuality of that and and it's placed within a kind of more maybe yeah in, in natural landscape like what that means in relation to a natural landscape her work is is very I mean it's so varied and I, I thought it was for me as an artist, one of the really interesting things I, I found in the book I didn't I, again I came to it very kind of as a appreciator not in any way very knowledgeable about her history or her work but was like thinking about how she borrowed a lot of techniques that she used in in her practice from magical practices I thought that was really interesting even things like the invention of, of 
synthetic pigments and how that influenced um, certain occultist practices and how she took a lot of that kind of color theory into her work. I mean, that's super fascinating, I think. And, you know, it's like a really interesting methodology, even if you kind of take it outside of the realm of the mystical or the magical, but just kind of thinking about how this uh, weaving of technological innovation magic and that becoming a kind of like methodology of, of art making is really interesting too. I absolutely think that it is. And, you know, when, when we see particularly, you know, the things that, that she did later in her life with the tarot, I, I think it's kind of the pinnacle of her exploration of some of that in a magical context. But something that I'm interested in, and I don't get into this in the book as much as I would have liked, but a place where I think there's a lot of room for discussion in her work was that she was, I think, very interested in the public engagement with things like color theory. She had, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff in her archives that are, it's based in kind of mystical and magical architecture. And I'm wondering if this is maybe something from the time when she was studying with Ozenfant, but she also did, she had a huge interest in murals. And I think a lot of her mural making also incorporated not just magical images, but also the color theory that she was working in because she knew that color had impact. So not only were colors these forces and energies that were making themselves present to the viewer and also present to her when she was creating them, but there's something about how she might have envisioned these in, in a public setting. And how did she see these as relating to maybe architecture or design? Because she did go there and she had an interest in it. You know, and I look at some of that and even the, the things that she was doing with gender. And it suggests to me something about public engagement and societal change. You know, she didn't, even though she was very interested in the wisdom of initiatory traditions, she wanted people to have these experiences. I think that was important. And so even though she had this, you know, she, she had this very intensive theory she was using around color that you see, you, know, you can map so much of, of her work to specific colors that she would have had magical alignments with, mostly Golden Dawn, not exclusively. But how did she want this to transform the viewer? And I think that there, there's something to that. I think she was getting at something with what she wanted to do with these technologies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was left thinking a lot about, you know, because I, you know, I don't know how I define my spiritual position, let's say. I don't really have a very coherent kind of way of thinking about it, I guess. like, And, and in a way... I did find that quite um, interesting that she also like there were certain things that she was interested from different traditions. And I also see myself mostly attracted to some kind of form of animism, I guess, in a way. But um, I do, I did think a lot about this, you know, a lot of practices. Well, one thing I'm looking at at the moment in, in my, my work that kind of has a resonance with this, I think is I've been looking at what, you know, the kind of, 
visual vernacular of psychedelics and how these kind of uh, traverse through the different psychotropic agents, but also you find them in like trance, you know, people that go into trances and also like artificial intelligence produces these very psychedelic kind of images. So I've been thinking a lot about the kind of space of this ineffability that I've maybe found in psychedelic experiences and how that kind of touches upon a creative space and thinking about how a lot of spiritual practice also look for this. They look at different strategies, I guess, to find moments where there's some form of dissolution of ego, let's say, or of or your subjectivity suspended, which is also like, I guess, one of the main kind of principles of, of uh, psychedelic experiences as well as a kind of suspension of subjectivity and and you know to me without sounding incredibly grandiose about my own practice but when I when I'm making I do feel similar kind of you know there's a, it's a similar sphere in many ways this kind of being nameless and being kind of in in the moment completely isolated from these sectionalities that create your identity and create this interface that you you, you operate socially and I was wondering about for her, like what you thought, you know, what the kind of creative sphere, I don't, I don't like that word so much, but that kind of place of making, let's say, how that, what, what was that in, in relation to her magical practice? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask. That's really interesting. <laughs> and I actually would love to also hear you talk about that particular space and what brings you to that particular space, because it's very evident that she had meditative practices that she used before she would create and also while she was creating. You know, that was part of her, the whole ideology of the mantic stain was that you had to have this opening up so that you could have that particular connection. And the techniques that she was using and the colors that she was using were helping not only to get into that space, but also, I think, to shape that space once she got there. There's some essays that she did, some magical essays about, for her, how she would, like, the importance of cultivating that space. So she was really interested in staring at and using images and sacred images as a way to enter an altered state of consciousness. So she wrote this piece for prediction, I think in the 50s, which was kind of interesting and early. And it's like, meditation is really important. Getting into an altered state of consciousness is a super important thing. You can do it in a Christian church, but I wouldn't really ask, you know, don't ask for help for this from any of the, the priests or anything you find there because they're not going to help you out. But if you happen to be in a church and you're looking at some symbols and say a stained glass window, here are some things that you can do to just totally lose yourself. Again, she wanted this technology to be available to people because she thought that, that being able to cultivate that state was really important. And it was clearly important for her in her own journey and as a foundation for the things that she did. But in that, there's kind of a dialogue with the viewer. I think, you know, obviously, here's a thing that I did, and hopefully it will help to transform you as well as you are looking at these pieces because mm -hmm. they were created in that state that for her was a portal 
it was it was a portal to other places. For me, this maybe brings me to, I guess, my bone, not bone of contention, but this place that I often arrive at thinking about these kind of, you know, when I think, I think you, you make a very interesting point in the, in the book. I think it's towards the end where you talk about this resurgence of interest in mysticism and spiritual shamanic practices in an art context. And I think that's, and you make the distinction that, but then the people often making that work aren't practicing I don't remember how you say it, but something like they're looking at the kind of grammar of it and and, uh, methodologies maybe, but they're not practicing it in an embodied way, which I completely agree with you. It's true. But I think one of, you know, the thing that I always reached a strange kind of point in. So I, I grew up in Goa with hippie parents and my dad was very into Kabbalah and Kabbalistic kind of uh, mysticism and would, paint trees of life all day and my aunt uh, painted the tarot so I grew up very close to like these kind of ideas so obviously I also have a rejection of them because I grew grew up close to them I have a kind of rebellion of like then I've got the issue with how I guess like capitalism has cannibalized a lot of these ideas and they become very you know unrigorous in a way like you know this idea of like I guess you know thinking about how even maybe sometimes astrology is referred to in this very kind of superficial way, you know, like, oh, that's so Gemini of you, or that's so, you know, and it's like, but it's much more complex than that. If you are to ascribe to it, it's it's super complex. It's not just your site, you know, things like that, where like, I guess there's something that's happened to that figure socially, culturally, that I find like a bit removed. But I think that the main issue that I have as a kind of spiritually curious communist is how so much of these kind of magical traditions have this really strong kind of libertarian, almost like Randian streak in them. And that bothers me. You know, it bothers me that there's very few of these practices that acknowledge that a kind of, let's say thinking can never be truly revolutionary without thinking about the material emancipation of all. You know, these kind of stumbling blocks that I have with, and obviously at the moment we're in a political moment moment where everything is much more pronounced. And I think that also, well, not everyone, I am definitely more aware and I, than I have been before about these things. But I think that that's always like an interesting thing to me, you know, this idea like that a lot of these people were very privileged. A lot of these people didn't have to think about money. They didn't have to think about like how they would eat or pay rent or, you know, these kind of things that I, I, I do believe can be constricting in terms of thinking about like transcendence or whatever, you know, when, when you have to provide on a very material level for yourself and the ones you love. I think it's difficult sometimes to kind of find space for that type of thinking. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm, it's not really a question. It's just thinking about how I feel I kind of wrote this phrase at the last talk I gave, gave which I said I, I'm brimming with unassigned faith. And it is really that, like I, I do, you know, I feel very connected and there are many kind of uh, traditions that are appealing to me or interesting, but there is this kind of thing about like collectivity, like how, you know, the individualism of a lot of it and also how like the kind of weirdly how this countercultural 
you know, this it, it's such an interesting history and thinking about like, you know, people like Kenneth Anger, they, they also were interested in Thelema and then they became these countercultural figures that brought a lot of, of those ideas into the mainstream as well, and Robert Anton Wilson, and how all these ideas have been so co-opted by the right now, which also kind of makes me feel that I don't know what anarchism is anymore. I don't know what a kind of left libertarian position is anymore. And how that kind of interfaces with magical practices is super interesting and difficult. Oh, wow. Do I <laughs> feel you there, my friend? This is a huge issue. And uh, I feel really confident that this is one area where Eiffel and I would have had real disagreements because I absolutely agree with you. And I am really very glad glad that you are, with your own work and your own statements, really clear about this issue and how it shows up in your own work. I've been actually in conversation with a number of people about how do we create and how do we talk about an occult or esoteric movement that doesn't do those things. And it, it, there is such an emphasis on the elite, on initiation, on, you know, the individual will, and all of these things that comes through the magical traditions that we're kind of all heir to now that is super ugly. And I've, so I've spent a lot of time over this past summer kind of looking at the roots of this because I, I also obviously study and write about contemporary paganism. You know, contemporary paganism and, and the occult, they're, they're the same, they're different, they, they intersect in all these different ways. But looking at, a part of my work is, is looking at right-wing paganism and the incursions of the right in contemporary pagan and occult communities. And what... I think it confuses a lot of particularly pagans of a certain age that I talk to about this. And by certain age, I mean kind of boomer generation, you know, late fifties is, Hey, this was supposed to be a countercultural thing. I'm a hippie. Where did this all go wrong? But when you look at the roots of countercultural thought, there's countercultural right and there's countercultural left. And the thing about paganism and the occult is that it sits in this interesting value space that is definitely counterculture, but a lot of those values are both right and left. So when you look at things like nudism or vegetarianism or the environmental movement and how you've got now eco-fascists. Well, we yeah. always had eco-fascists, you know? I mean, Hitler was really big on forest yeah, conservation. Yeah, totally. totally, you yeah. Know? So it's not like this is a new thing. This is a, a thing that's been present all along, and it just kind of takes these, these different forms. So for us to kind of unpack some of this. And I've been reading this summer because I was like, what is the political moment where this happened? Because in the United States, you've got these different strands of the right. You know, you've got the neoliberal right, and then you've got this other kind of paleoconservatism, which, mm -hmm. and, and then you've got the, the European new right, which has a lot of these values that, yeah. you know, hippies just love. Yeah, which really super confuses the space. And there was this moment, this political moment, and I'm, I'm thinking it was, you know, the, the rejection of 
the unions, the rejection yes. of communism and yes. the embrace of the individual as, and, and this idea of individual freedom as yes. the thing which the counterculture latches onto going forward rather than we're all in this together. I have your back socially. We have to have each other's backs. And so, you know, if you look at, at a lot of the American hippies, it's all about, I can do whatever I want. Totally. And we lose that. We completely lose that. So in our, our counterculture gives up on real communalism as a value, I think. No, I agree 100%. And I think also there's this kind of, I mean, this is my like observations of growing up very much within that community, you know, like a hippie commune in Goa, which was a complete unwillingness to think about the kind of social and economic relationality of what transgression means. Like, what does it mean to transgress? Transgression being such a kind of cornerstone to both a lot of magical societies and to also libertarian kind of leftist, anarchist, you know, countercultural groups. You know, let's say there are different forms of transgression, obviously, but ones that happen materially, there's always collateral to that. And who is the collateral? Who are the bodies that become the collateral of that kind of transgression? You know, that unwillingness to acknowledge relationality in that way, I think, was an absolute failing of the movement. And it's a price that, like, we pay for now, in a way, that we're paying for now, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that when I see those things in... I'm not against self-care. I like me a nice bubble bath, you know. But when I see that kind of thinking in the uh, current commodification of the esoteric and the occult done in this way that is not thinking about that collateral damage mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And how do we re-envision? And I think this is a real project that I would love to see more people working on. How do we envision an occult, an esoteric milieu that does these things. Yeah, and that also, I mean, that what's interesting is that like a lot of the, I mean, I, I would probably see myself as quite aligned with, you know, I think identity politics are incredibly important. I, I think that they need to be positioned with other kind of modes of thinking about social and collectivity as well. But I do think that there's many things that get mis misinterpreted about those politics. And I do think that a lot of the demands are, they're interesting because they, in a way, like the kind of d demands of transgression are like, I like what I like. This is what I need to do to kind of grow. This is what I need to do to you know, like the kind of punk libertarian uh, transgressiveness is like, I want to offend like bourgeois sensibilities. I want to do things that kind of make this generation angry and like shocked, you know. But then I think about like what a lot of the demands are. And it's, it's so that is also a demand. It's a kind of demand of tolerance, problematic in my opinion, but it's a demand of like, this is what I need. And in a way, a lot of what gets misinterpreted about identity politics is I think people are saying this is what I need as a marginalized or min minoritized subject in a community. This is what I need to be safe. This is what I need to, to feel like I can grow. And, and these are, and they're, they're very often not transgressive. That's the thing. They're about shifting how you position yourself you know, and what you find palatable and what you don't find palatable, what you find a nuisance or not a nuisance, or, you know, these kind of very petty 
things really. So it's interesting to me how like that culture is so oppositional to uh, identity politics, but yet there is this ground that could be very easily understood about it, which is this demand for need. It's a demand for a need, but for an actual need, as opposed to one that's about like, you know, this is what I need to reach, you know, like some kind of theoretical idea of growth necessarily. This is about safety and about survival, really, isn't it? And I guess that's where like this idea of elite and privilege come up again. It's like so much of, of those milieus, as you say, they, they are wealthy. They are not necessarily anymore, but they were very wealthy. They were like people that were very free from a lot of these things in many ways. Yeah, and, and there's you know, kind of this, the idea of, I think, you know, what the spiritual quest needs to do to you. And a lot of that is written for, it's a male spiritual quest, for one thing, that, that ideal quest. Yeah, it's who gets the pain inflicted on them throughout that process. You know, exactly. why does it have to be that way? Why do we need to have that particular structured narrative in order to have that? But, you know, I always like to, to think about, and this is kind of a, a tension in, in academic conversations about what, you know, quote, Western esotericism or the occult means is the distinction between the groups and the bodies who have this, this very closed elite initiatory idea of spiritual attainment and the magician on the streets, you know, I heard the phrase the other day, service magician. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the people who are doing magic and who are, they're doing magic because they have to get stuff done. And yeah. then that's part of their, their worldview incorporates that. And yeah. again, it's, it's an animist sensibility because everything around you has this potential to become alive and a source of connection. And I really like that. That's something mm-hmm. that, I don't know, it speaks to me. It speaks to me yeah. on a number of levels and how we, how we work magic kind of on a day-to-day basis, how we become magic, you know, how we are magic. So like, because I guess it, magic is one of these kind of nebulous terms that mean different things to different people, obviously. <laughs> Do you see any kind of correlation between like the kind of psychedelic experiences of communion of unity of uh, temporality and and magic or spirituality or mysticism even I, I think for me personally that is about how I would think about relating to the world and how you know the, like those those altered states can change the color of the conversation mm-hmm. But it's, it's about, for me, that magic is, is about conversation, about relationality, and how you position yourself in the natural world, the supernatural world, and these other ways of, of being, whether it's through the psychedelic experience or through the meditation experience, it, it perhaps changes how I might look at something, how the kind of conversation that I might be able to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'd be absolutely. interested in hearing what your take is on that. <laughs> and also, given that your book was titled Our Fatal Magic, yes. how, what is that magic? What, how do you see that magic? And how do you think we can create a more communal, kind, loving, 
esoteric world. Yeah, it means many things, obviously, to me. But I think in terms of the title, I was interested in the kind of ineffable or qualities, experiences that exist on the margins of language and how made word, how they become word and how word is like magic. It kind of creates, it comes into existence. It's a process of creation, putting into word. Um, So I think a lot of that book was concerned with kind of trauma that some of it uh, specific to my own kind of autobiographical experiences, but a lot of it is very typical and very shared among a group, a social group. So I think part of that, our fatal magic was the idea, the magic in there was about putting that into language and it becoming, I started writing it six years ago, so I've changed a lot of my positions since, since then. But I think when I first came with that title, I was thinking about um, Sarah Ahmed's idea of like weaponizing f- fragility, what it meant to be vulnerable in or fra- you know fragile in a non not in relation to violence, but as a position that is completely, that has a kind of mechanism to it that can be thought of differently, basically. And that was what I was thinking about our fatal magic, was that this kind of history of violence that's gendered could be recast as a type of revolutionary magic about feminism. I mean, I think that, you know, you talk about it in the book as well, which is, it's it's like my struggle as an artist and I think a lot of people who think about, you know, the kind of tension between uh, materialist social reality and like the fantastical or speculative sphere as a mode of, of uh, creation is that they, they're not always compatible in a way. And I think some people do it, you know, like Marge Piercy's novel, Woman on the Edge of Time does manage to kind of, you know, a lot of, of actually 70s science fiction feminism, uh, feminist science fiction manages to bring together these kind of, the, use the fantastical to talk about like acutely political uh, contemporary ideas around gender and justice, you know, these kind of social ideas. But, you know, I've always been interested in the kind of preoccupations of uh, the surrealists in many ways, you know, the dreams and the unconscious and myth, you know, these are all kind of touchstones in my practice. But I'm trying right now after, you know, I'm in this kind of state of flux at the moment where I'm really trying to see how this can be put at the service of a material reality and not just remain this kind of escapist, you know, enjoyable form. Although I do believe that affect can be deeply political and affect can be transformative. So I don't see them as oppositional in that way. But I do wonder about some of the kind of, I think, reading books like this and kind of learning more about, you know, having those questions around how historically privilege wasn't necessarily thinking people talk, thought about but obviously it, when you read it now you do think about these things so I'm, I'm trying to be aware of how what I make can talk about things that are not just in this kind of fantastical realm but actually about what's happening or you know and I think that like even I mean I know that Marxists, many Marxists, uh, we're not a homogenous group, obviously, but don't like referring to communism as spiritual, for example, 
but like to me it is you see that's the thing if I'm honest about it and there are obviously people that write about like transcendental communism or even you know Mark Fisher's like acid communism touches upon some of these things but I am interested in how I mean there, there are reasons why I've become attracted to the psychedelic a because of my own experiences of it and and growing up around that culture obviously but also to me there's something interesting about how there's a material element to it you know something's ingested it's a pill it's a it's a fungus it's a piece of paper you know there's this kind of you know there's something that happens in that experience that is can be potentially quite democratic. I'm not, I'm not advocating for everybody to take acid. My parents were actually involved in a plot to contaminate the water system in the UK with acid, but uh, <laughs> I'm not talking about that. But I do think that there's something in those experiences that, like, for me, put me face-to-face with thinking about reality in a very different way and thinking about what construct is and thinking about, like, how... What, what does it mean to, to consistently throughout your life obey protocol and not break convention? You know, and what it means to do the opposite to that and how, you know, like even a kind of conversation like defund the police would have been unimaginable to be happening on a mainstream stage, let's say, and outside of revolutionary circles like 10, 15 years ago. Now, like can be had like in on mainstream like on Sky News, I heard people talking about that, you know. So that's quite interesting how, like, if you kind of say that you can shatter reality, everything that's part of it can be shattered and everything could be re- rebuilt. And, like, thinking about the power of, I mean, I don't want to go down and be too exposing of my inner workings, but, you know, when I think about what is at the root of what I'm writing about now, it's these kind of, like, these two forces I guess which exist in pretty much every kind of spiritual mystical magical uh, society this idea of like these two opposing powers and to me that they are manifest in how we want to live they're not just manifest in belief they're manifest in how we want to be social beings subjects how we want to live in relation to each other and the most big thing of all like what is life what is a life you know who is anyone to say that they will uphold a system where another life can experience cradle to grave oppression that's completely anti-ethical to my belief system basically right right and i think that you know a lot of looking at the okay well if i if if i you know do this over here or if I take part in these magical activities over here, how do you really deconstruct those and say, oh, what, what are the values embodied in this activity? And I think especially for people who really kind of have a, a fetish for ideas of tradition, mm-hmm. the, tradition the idea of tradition has this kind of, this quality, this authoritative quality, which I really believe that breaking down the idea of tradition and authenticity is really, really important because it becomes this, this authority where you know, people don't question the values within it mm-hmm. and the values within what they're doing. And that to me is just so deeply problematic. Traditions, authenticities, authenticity, we make that up, you know, yeah. we set the parameters for what that is. Yeah. And a lot of people just don't even, don't even think about that. They don't yeah. even and think, it's like, it's all made up. It's all made up. 
Totally. And a lot of people have been excluded from the architecting of it. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Right. They yeah. totally have. Yeah. And that's yeah. good. Yeah, exactly. But I was thinking about automatism, mm-hmm. the different kind of techniques that she used in her work in painting. And I know that in some occult traditions, it's used more in writing, I think. But the, there's something about instinct that I think about a lot or intuition and instinct and I think that that also I'm I'm pro abolish all essentialism including intuition and instinct so to me like intuition is really I think of it as a kind of uninhibited and fluent call onto a set of sensibilities and ideas that have been constructed by a network of material conditions so I think you know this idea that someone growing up in Australia, in Sydney, and someone growing up in Mumbai are going to have the same intuition or that their intuition isn't, isn't going to be constructed by you know, the, their context is ridiculous. So I think that that's an interesting thing as well about a lot of this idea of automatism is that it's this idea that you're like talking to a kind of essential absolute self. But actually to me, you're talking to like your you know, like what has brought you there. Yeah, your own kind yeah. of habitus and your constructed yeah. reality that you can't really, that conditions pretty yeah. much everything that happens in the, the lightning fast connection that we call intuition, but sure yeah. we have, but they're, you know, those are, are culturally and socially conditioned. Totally. And, you know, this is probably in terms of our own practice and conception of the universe. I think Luna and I sit on pretty much opposite ends, you know, because I am the, okay, let's, we all make it up and understanding our conditions and how they shape our realities. And no, she saw that there was this one big platonic universe and it looks like this and it's broken down in these ways and you do these direct operations and you reach, go into these altered state of consciousness and you can reach that ultimate and beyond, you know, and I like to say that, that kind of Plato ruined everything. <laughs> and that, that's kind of my own personal belief, but she loved that stuff. That's what she lived for. And for her, that was, that was her way of expressing enlightenment was to be able to, you know, kind of reach all those different worlds, which were very, very real for her. And because she was a perennialist, they would have been real for everybody. Exactly. Yeah. They would have been real for everybody. And it's, uh, I kind of want to go back to, because I think it's such an important point, what you were saying about, the relationship that people have between communism and spirituality. And I am, I am by no means a Mark Fisher expert. We've just kind of, our family's been doing this kind of deep dive into Mark Fisher videos because that's what you do, right? And <laughs> having these conversations about, well, can we envision the future anymore? Can we even do that? Why are we always looking to these past templates? And I really, at my gut, want to resist that. I yeah. want to, I want to resist the fact that we can't. Of course, we can imagine futures, and yeah, we're really, really stuck on the things that we, sh- the, the templates that we've been handed. But how we've got to be able to envision something going forward so that we cannot do these things that we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I think that you know this kind of slow but sure dismantling of hierarchical conceptions of knowledge is is super kind of pivotal for that 
in a way. I think a kind of more horizontal view also of historical, you know, that's what what this book does as well, is it brings into the word, you know, a, a kind of overlooked history that is interesting in many ways. It's not just interesting because she's an incredible artist and she's an incredible kind of force of nature in many ways. I found it really interesting that at the end, you know, she ended up, you, you talk about her letters to the council talking about there not being good enough kind of provision for mental health. And, and it, it's not a failure. It's kind of, that is, that is a society, you know, that, that's when she kind of had a need for a better social apparatus to be there. It wasn't there, obviously, you know, when, when like she kind of dipped out of the um, way she could live, you know, and like old age is, is very indiscriminate in that way. She then did need this kind of state, more state orientated way of helping each other, you know, when, when you don't have a next of kin that can help you. I mean, there's so many things I think that are interesting about the book and about, you know, the kind of rigorousness that you did about bringing the various elements of her life I mean, what I said at the beginning about how that real acute sense of flimsiness of this world that had no infrastructure to contain someone like her and how that left her kind of, you know, constantly touching upon these different groups, but never really being sublimated into them fully, really. You know, I think that's, they're really interesting things about that. But what that does is it also kind of, to me, like on a larger scale, is that it's a history like that, there's like hundreds of those probably. Do you see what I mean? There's like all these lives that aren't documented, that have these incredible kind of elucidations on social structure, on gender, on oppression, on what it means to want to articulate a, a, a drive to be, to write, to paint, to, to do these things. That's the kind of, I, I saw someone yesterday on some chat talking about, you know, if the author, artist, is capitalist in its nature and that artists were always contingent on a kind of set of relations that enabled them to kind of be creative and bring their work to the world. And someone said they're both, you know, they can be both an author, artist can also be a a resistance to capitalism and also like a, a kind of embodiment of it. And I think there is something, again, this idea of self-realization, which I guess it is a kernel that a lot of practices turn around, both uh, artistically and, let's say, spiritually. It's this idea of kind of discovering and actualizing yourself. That is, yeah, there is this, I, yeah, there is always this little voice of like self, self, self in there, which is, it's kind of difficult finding ways to mediate all these forces I, I feel like we could talk forever actually I'm, I'm sorry um, <laughs> I really would love to love to, to do this more because it's great <laughs> yeah it's really interesting and I mean it, you know I think that in a way one of the brilliant things about you know the feminist movement is that it brings scholars into these realms that have been very male dominated and that can also bring a critical eye into it you know which which has never been the case really I definitely I thought was it's, people have called her a proto-feminist. I'm like, no, she was a feminist feminist, and she believed that women were completely superior to men in every way because, you know, of course. And but what's what's funny about her views on this? You know, I she had such a radical orthodoxy because when I think a lot of us 
conceive of the idea of erasing gender and having a, a genderless society where that doesn't matter and we're all in connection with one another. We think of this as something, well, this is obviously this futuristic concept. Mm -hmm. She thought as that was for her an orthodoxy. That was mm -hmm. something that happened in the past that we need to get back to. So it's, it's funny because she, all of these things that are actually so super radical, like her ideas of the divine feminine, her ideas of gender, her ideas about nature, they can be put in this very kind of futuristic ahead of her time framework. But she was like, no, this is our nature. This is what we should yeah. be doing, which is this really fascinating set of discourses because in order to get there, of course, would require the dismantling of all of these societal things, right? So, yeah. you know, she's, she was like completely radical and completely orthodox at the same time. Thank you to Amy and Ty for that wonderful discussion. If you'd like to hear more discussions, interviews, and readings from across the MIT Press's output, you can subscribe to the podcast on any of the major streaming platforms. And if you'd like to support us, please consider going over to iTunes and giving us a five-star review. Finally, I'd like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galeno, who provided the soundtrack. <laughs>